0: The following program may contain explicit language. It's Tuesday, September 22nd, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday on this program, we talked about Joe Biden not committing to a plan to pack the court, not publicly anyway. So yesterday evening, he was asked that very question by a local news reporter. Green Bay Action 2 News was on the scene. And let's say the Democrats then take over the Senate but maintain the House. Would you consider adding more Supreme Court justices to the bench? Brittany Schmidt with the good question. Let's hear the response. It's a legitimate question, but let me tell you, I'm not going to answer that question okay. because it will shift all the focus. That's
1: what he wants. He never wants to talk about the issue at hand. He always tries to change the subject.
0: But let's say I answer that question then the whole debate's going to be, well, Biden said or didn't say. Biden said he would or wouldn't. That's gonna, this, this, The discussion should be about
1: why he is moving in a direction that's totally inconsistent with what the founders wanted. Their design, the Constitution says design. If voters get to pick the president who gets to make the pick and the Senate who gets to decide. We're in the middle of an election right now, Brenda, you know, people are voting now. By the time this Supreme Court here would be held if they hold one, would, in fact, we would probably have estimated 30 to 40 percent of the American people already have voted. It is a
0: fundamental breach of constitutional principle. It must stay on that and it shouldn't happen. Well done. Excellent answer for now. And Biden is going to get pressed on this. And what he should say is something like, I'll tell you what. I won't stand by when healthcare for 20 million Americans is being threatened. And if this court locks 4-4, that's what's gonna happen. And as president, that's unacceptable. What I'm going to do as president is address the needs of the American people. Listen to the people and address their needs. That sort of thing. Don't be overly coy, but don't take options off the table. Keep focused on the results that help people. And oh yeah, results that are popular. Now this wasn't the only development between men who were on their party's presidential tickets in 2020, because Mitt Romney came out and said he would vote for a Supreme Court justice this term. But of course he would. I never understood why people expected that he wouldn't. I guess it's because he voted for impeachment. But a conservative Supreme Court justice isn't an emboldened Trump thing to Romney. It's an emboldened conservatism thing. It's why he got into politics in the first place. In fact, If any member, any Republican in the Senate should be unencumbered by the idea of endorsing a vote for a Supreme Court justice this term, it's Romney, who wasn't even in the Senate in 2016 when Mitch McConnell failed to bring to a vote the Garland nomination. Mitt Romney's hands aren't even dirty. I checked. He seems to have never articulated a principle of not nominating a justice in an election year. He's one of the few Republicans not contradicting himself. To hope that Romney would once more stand athwart the Republican agenda and say no is to misunderstand Romney and maybe human motivation. Romney is anti-abortion, anti-regulation, anti-affordable care act. A new conservative Supreme Court pick advances those stances and principles. To oppose it on the basis of process makes little sense to Mitt Romney. He sees seating a justice who will champion all those beliefs as advancing a good in the world. He, by the way, thinks of Merritt Garland being kept off the court also as advancing a good in the world. Maybe not how it was done, but probably doesn't think so much about that. So we, or some of the people who are surprised by his action, maybe expected him to subtract from what he would think of as two beneficial developments that helped America in the name of righting a past procedural wrong that, in his view, actually also led to a positive outcome. No one in the world works like that, least of all successful politicians. And by the way, voting for a Supreme Court justice now in isolation of the Merrick Garland case, it's not unconstitutional. It's not unethical. And Merrick Garland isn't a thing Mitt Romney had anything to do with. If it weren't for Merrick Garland, I don't even know that it would strike any of us as so unreasonable for the Republicans to try to hold a vote. But listen to me, reasonable, reason it all. It's like I haven't paid attention to how anyone spoke or acted during the past four years. But in case you're wondering if that is the case, on the show today, I should feel about Lindsey Graham and what he has said or done in the last four years, but also this morning, where protesters have not been letting poor Lindsey sleep. But first, CNN's Brian Stelter has hosted Reliable Sources, the media analysis show for the duration of the Trump presidency. There is a lot of content to get to. Stelter is out with a book, Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth, in which it is positive that Fox News misses most of all Roger Ailes. Stay tuned and listen to learn why. Brian Stelter is the host of the CNN program, Reliable Sources, and is the author of, it even says on it, New York Times bestselling author. That was from his old books. This is from the new one, the author of Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. I got to tell you that subtitle downplays or plays down as the president might have what's actually going on here. Let's talk about the news. Let's talk about Fox. Let's talk with Brian. Hi, thanks for joining me, Brian. Great to be on with you. Thank you. So I'll just give you the time here to lay the predicate because people will say, all right, here's a Fox expert. Maybe they're familiar with your work. Oh, yes, there are so many critiques. But yours is a specific one of uh, Fox and what might have been with Roger Ailes. So what are you arguing or laying out in this book?
1: Well, I think uh, Fox didn't have to be this way. Fox has changed dramatically in the Trump years. Uh, Yes, it was always conservative. But now it is conspiratorial and full of crazy talk. You know, it's like it, the, channel, the channel is broadcast from another planet much of the time. And uh, in the book, I explain why, you know, how, how Trump was able to basically hijack Fox News.
0: OK, so I'll let you lay out a little more, but I want to tell you my intention. I disagree with your premise. I was hoping you did this, Let's bring it on. Even if things played out differently, I think Fox would be where they are today. But can you tell me, because our listeners might just know of Roger Ailes at maybe a little bit about his biography and how he came up with the Mike Douglas show and how he advised Nixon, but they generally regard him as a nefarious figure who did nothing but promote the right wing agenda. So why should we look at this guy and say that he could have been a kind of saving grace, keeping Fox from the very extremes that it has gone to.
1: Yeah, this is certainly a matter of degrees, but I'm suggesting to you that the temperature might have been lukewarm and not burning off our finger at, you know, now, mm-hmm. uh, fingers right now. I I think when we look back at 2015 and 2016, Roger Ailes before he was forced out for uh, having, you know, been exposed as a sexual abuser of his staff, he he was trying to hold Trump accountable to some degree. For example, when Trump attacked Megyn Kelly, Ailes hit back. Ailes hit back hard. Ailes canceled some of Trump's appearances on Fox. So there at least were moments where Ailes was trying to show that he was the boss, not Trump. Now, I I completely admit we don't know what would have happened if Ailes were running the network once Trump was elected. Maybe Ailes would have been even more sycophantic than Sean Hannity. But I think the signs point to the idea that that Ailes wanted to be the boss, not Trump. You know, that it was Ailes' kingdom, not Trump's. That Ailes was the ruler of the GOP, not Trump. You know what I mean?
0: Mm Mm-hmm. But there are so many Republican institutions that you could date to the year 2015 or 2016 when Ailes was ousted from power and died soon thereafter. So many Republican institutions where that was true. And if we just stopped the clock and didn't look forward into the future, we could have said something like, oh, well, Lindsey Graham could have been the guardrail against Trump. Jason Chaffetz could have been the guardrail. And now Jason Chaffetz is just on Fox carrying Trump's water. We could have said, oh, the National Review, that." That will be an anti-Trump outlet. Look at their uh, anti-Trump editorial. And then you could go through the lists of the conservatives who contributed to that editorial, Brent Bozell and all those other guys who are now pro-Trump. So this is just point one of my counter argument that yeah, good, good. you're pointing to you're yeah, you're pointing to a Republican institution that maybe showed signs of standing up to Trump before Trump gained power. But so many of those other Republican institutions wilted. Why wouldn't Fox News have? It
1: may have wilted, but I had many staffers there say to me, if Ailes were still in charge, the place would feel like it has a sense of leadership. The place would feel like it has a backbone um, and would defend its talent when Trump attacks them. You know, this is perhaps an alternative history on the part of these staffers. They look around and they say, well, right now we don't have a strong leader. We need a strong leader. But like you said, the other guardrails seem to have all failed. I, I describe in hoax my personal mistake. I thought that Ryan Priebus and Sean Spicer were going to be adults in the room. And I, very early on, by February of 2017, realized I was wrong.
0: Right. Another, I guess, counterpoint to your thesis is... Could you name a time when Roger Ailes chose to do something that made less money or that jeopardized profit? Because it does seem to me that there are very few examples. There are maybe niche examples like the dispatch of Republicans standing up to Trump and thriving. I think there are hundreds of examples of the right getting the message. This is the moneymaker. And as far as I know, Ailes always chased the money. He, he did. He, but
1: but for that reason, he was a little bit more in the middle than Fox is today. Um, I think he always wanted Fox to be compared to CBS and NBC, not to One America News. And right now, the comparisons are more to One America News. Um, you know, th- I guess that, that would be my, my distinction, is that um, Ailes wanted the network to have at least the appearance of a strong news operation right? So he wanted Shep Smith on the air. This is a great example, I think. If Ailes were still in charge and were still alive, Shep Smith probably wouldn't have left. Shep Smith would have felt more supported, more defended by management. But instead, you've had this exodus of journalists from Fox and uh, the propaganda is winning and the news is losing. You might, of course, say that having journalists leave Fox is a good thing because it makes the network
0: appear to be more clearly what it is. Right, that's actually a side point. I actually love Chris Wallace, and I thought Shep Smith was good, but not in a we have to tune him in instead of Jake Tapper type way. But good that he's in the middle of uh, of Fox type way. Now, what I want to ask you though about the presence of the actual news content within Fox, and you have, and, and I don't know how many of my listeners know this, but there are hours throughout the day where Fox engages in what seems like the news and much of it is news content and maybe is even indistinguishable from other cable news. But my question is, why do they do that? What's the strategy behind having hours like maybe Brent Baer, certainly Chris Wallace on the weekends, and what Shep Smith was doing?
1: Yeah, well, this is one of the, the core points of Hoax is that even those news hours have changed. They've moved more to the right. They've become trumpier and trumpier over time. And that's caused so much frustration inside the network. And that's why so many sources spoke to me saying, we've lost our way. We've gone off the rails. I think there's always been this combination at Fox of a news network and a political operation in the same organization. It's just that right now, the political operation, the propaganda operation is getting bigger and bigger and stronger, and the news operation is getting weaker. But I think they've always mixed the two together because Ailes thought that was a way to be taken seriously. To be taken credible, you know, to be viewed like CBS and NBC, right? You have to have
0: your journalists there. Well, by who? Because I didn't, I didn't sense the mainstream media uh, took them credible. <laughs> well, I would say advertisers. Yeah,
1: I would say advertisers. For example, um, you mm-hmm. know, if you want to get big sponsors, if you want to um, be able to re- re- recruit talent from other networks, but but I think what's happened to Fox is what's happened to the GOP. It's, it's not chasing undecided voters. They're not trying to appeal to, to the broad swath of the country. They're only trying to super serve a base audience that wants more and more red meat. And that's, that is essentially the story of Fox News in the Trump age.
0: I think you're right, but I also think that Roger Ailes or, yeah, it was Roger Ailes who called the shots, thought that by having those couple of hours, it bolstered the overall network, not just in in terms of credibility among elites or advertisers, but in terms of the bottom line that you could point to either as a propagandist would or earnestly, you could point to the real news they do and, and really make the case that there is a differentiation between the day side and the opinion side at night. And that all adds up to big ratings and that somewhere out there in America, the viewer likes this. But I think Post L's history showed that that was unnecessary. Fox's ratings have done so much better without even adhering to a semblance of news content during the day. And, and
1: look, you know what they're going to say over there. They're going to say, we have journalists. We have Jennifer Griffin. She confirmed parts of the Atlantic story. And that is true. But those journalists are feeling suffocated for the reason that you just said, which is that the audience wants the propaganda. They, you know, what's amazing is that like at 5 p.m., that talk show, The Five, has, you know, three million viewers. And then at 6 p.m., Brett Bear's newscast is lucky to have two million viewers. So
0: more than a million viewers are turning the channel because they don't want to watch the news. Right. And that was and that is over a baseline of what was established during Al's time. So what I'm saying is if he could have been given a crystal ball and shown you don't actually need the real news or what's close to, you know, some moderate right wing or center right wing version of the news, maybe he would have eschewed it.
1: Hmm. Maybe. Maybe that's that's interesting. That's interesting. But here's the other factor I would add to this conversation. Rupert Murdoch seems to want some news on Fox. Um, he likes mm-hmm. to call Brett Bear's newscast, the news, like as if it's, as if it's, you know, the only news he consumes, like, hey, I saw it on the news yesterday when, when he's talking about Brett Bear's show. So there's also that corporate factor of what is the ownership? What is the, you know, kind of, what is the patriarch want on the channel? You know, he he wants to tune in and believe that he has the strongest news division. But again, that gets to the root of the problem. There are so many journalists at Fox who have left
0: because they can't stand it there in the Trump age. And they can't hire new ones. They can't hire legitimate people to replace them. That's
1: been a big part of the issue. That's right. That's been a big part of the issue. Uh, there was a retirement just last week from the, from the D.C. Bureau. You know, they, they've lost a lot of talent. It's hard to recruit a new talent. And and as a result, you know, the channel gets Trumpier and Trumpier and Trumpier. Every change that's made, almost every change, makes the channel Trumpier. And because that's what the audience wants, there's very much a tension here between the business interest, which is to to just go far right, and the editorial interest, which is to tell the truth and call out Trump's scandals and not ignore the the problems that are happening, not, not ignore his lying. Um, So I guess in other words, the incentives are all screwed up.
0: I then come up short when I try to consider the idea of the editorial interest. whose editorial interest? Certainly people within Fox, actual journalists who find themselves working for Fox, maybe people who would say, you know, I just want to do essentially the weekly standard of the air, and that's how they see Fox. But that's not really what Fox is. When you talk about we've lost our way and we've lost our compass, I mean, what really was the way? We all watch Fox post 9-11. We all watch Fox during the Obama years. We all watch Fox when, or many of us watch Fox when they did story after story about Black Panthers intimidating people at polls. This wasn't just the content in the primetime hours. This was their story of the day and woven throughout the news. Maybe there's a little bit too much of a rosy idea of what the quote unquote way was.
1: Yeah, I, I get that. And, I, and, and, and I, I've heard some of that, that critique I'm I'm trying to reflect what I think is this sense within the network of a a big change that's been bad, including a change that's been bad for Trump. That's the other thing about this. Fox hurts him. (laughs) Fox misleads him, along with millions of other viewers. When there are these obsessions about voter fraud and other stories that are mostly made up, dramatically exaggerated to scare the viewers, it hurts Trump. So this is a twisted relationship that arguably is not actually good for any, any party.
0: A good example that makes that point is the war on Baltimore story.
1: Oh my gosh, the war on Baltimore. This story drives me crazy because I grew up in Maryland and I, know, and I know the area well. You know, you've got the situation last year where um, Elijah Cummings is, is still with us and he's been calling Trump out about immigration. And so this uh, conservative African-American activist uh, decides to uh, go into the inner city of Baltimore, record videos of abandoned row homes, criticize Elijah Cummings. And basically the message of her of her whole monologue is, hey, Elijah Cummings, worry about your own backyard before you worry about the border. Like clean up your own house. You know, that, that was the message. So she gets on Fox and Friends. She does this, this, this segment, at, you know, six in the morning on a Saturday. You know, by midday, Trump is tweeting racist things about Baltimore, saying that no one would ever want to live there. It's a, it's a district of 600,000 people. Of course, people love to live there. There's beautiful suburbs, beautiful farmland, and beautiful city areas as well. And I'm not trying to diminish the problems of, uh, of impoverished parts of Baltimore, but, you know, it's this kind of hate that comes from the president that's so unglued from reality. And it was all caused by Fox.
0: Yeah, it becomes the administration's uh, focus. and It, it becomes be- a
1: week-long story. It becomes a week-long narrative for Trump and Fox. And here's where I think it's so damaging. Fox never admits that it started on their air. Fox never says, oh, yeah, maybe we misled the president. It was our fault. Like, it was that segment we did at 6 in the morning because we needed to fill airtime, So we put on this woman who we called a GOP strategist, even though there's no proof she ever worked for a campaign. Apparently, she interned for a couple of campaigns. like there's so much that's so wrong with this, and we end up having this week long storyline which the rest of the media then feels compelled to cover, right? So then I'm on c n n talking about this b s about Baltimore, which is basically like it's a waste of everyone's time and it's a waste of the president's attention span, and of course, the president was posting racist ideas, which is you know a whole other whole other problem, and it all starts on Fox. And the only winner, I guess, in that scenario is the Fox producer who gets a slap on the back. And if someone says, good job, that was great. The president loved your story.
0: Yeah. So this brings me to the question, is Fox a version of state TV, which you discuss in the book? Not exactly state TV, but it's something like state TV. Or is the better way to look at it that our state is TV state? In other words, Fox is not just reflecting whatever the president's agenda is. Fox is setting the agenda and the president is reflecting Fox.
1: Yes, that that was really my conclusion after doing all this research. It's that Fox has more power than Trump with regards to narrative about what's going on in the country and what conservatives are thinking. Fox is setting the agenda, Trump is following it. He wakes up, he watches Fox and Friends, he tweets about it. He is following what Fox is presenting. And, and in that way, it is a TV-run state. You know, the whole the whole notion of a state-run TV, which we associate with Russia or somewhere. You know, obviously, the United States is not financing Fox News. doesn't need to. So it's not a state-run TV. But it is state-supported TV, right? Because Fox gets more interviews and Fox gets more information and, and Fox has an inside edge with the president. So it's state-supported TV. And, and the flip side is it is a TV-supported state where, unfortunately, Uh, The president's, you know, worst impulses are fed by Fox.
0: And that's Brian Stelter. He will be on again tomorrow as he and I talk about the Murdochs, Fox post-Trump, and all the news anchors who like to share their opinions a lot. That's Brian Stelter, author of Hoax, Donald Trump, Fox News, and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. And now the spiel. Well, you probably heard about the old tape that has resurfaced. That puts me in an awkward position, making me look somewhat like a hypocrite. Margaret, can you play that tape from the archives? Yeah, this is from a a GIST episode in the fall of 2015. Let us hear that. Here we go. One of radio's trailblazing announcers introduces what he calls a little beach. Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. As I look into the horizon of our future, I say this. The New York Metropolitans, who are in the World Series this annum, shall return there many times in the next half decade. Moving on to Lindsey Graham, the senator from South Carolina, is a man of honor and integrity who would never go back on his word. If he does, I say hold the tape and hold me to account. In fact, upon that unlikely event, I advise you to unsubscribe to the GIST podcast and perhaps turn your podcast energies to our rival's show, the only one with more potential staying power than the gist. It is called Mystery Show. It's on Gimlet. Long may it ensorcel, but again, I declare Lindsey Graham shall never contradict himself in a glaring and embarrassing way, and also that on fleek shall never fade from the lexicon. Oh, my God. Do you hear the sound quality there? It's like a different era. If you don't believe this is a long time ago, look at that microphone. So... There are contradictions and hypocrisies in political life, but I have rarely seen one as blatant and absolute as what Lindsey Graham said then and what he is saying now. Then he said, we, if we were in the very same situation, would not allow a vote for a Supreme Court nominee. And now that we are in that very same situation, he is saying We need to vote on the Supreme Court nominee. You're probably aware of the Graham Pledge. It certainly seems to suggest contradiction. It does. It really does. I'm not going to argue you off that point. But there are actually two different Lindsey Graham contradiction tapes, and I want to play a little bit of each, and I want to get into the context of each. So the first was during a Judiciary Committee hearing. He was addressing his fellow senators, looking them in the eye, and laying it out.
2: I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it whoever it might be, make that nomination, and you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right.
0: You hear that? He bookended the statement with the promise, you can use my words against me. Now, he's a little miffed that his words are being used against him. But actually, when you think about it, he's breaking two promises. One, the actual promise, and the other, how right we are to point out that he broke the promise. He really can't be upset with that. I don't know, maybe he's just sleep deprived. Because activists are outside his Washington, D.C. townhouse into the wee hours of the morning, chanting, Good morning, Lindsey Graham, using bullhorns, deploying strobe lights. Let's hope Lindsey Graham's neighbors are not epileptic. I hope you have a nice but why would Graham have said those words? Why would he paint himself into that corner? Well, he told us, he told us within those very remarks. Now, this part of his statement is not being as widely circulated, but it is useful in its explanatory power.
2: Uh, Here's what's going to happen. In the unlikely event, we lose the White House, which I know is hard to believe, given the dynamic of the Republican Party now. But just in case we lose, and I know that seems almost impossible to imagine, uh, Hillary Clinton's going to be president, unless Bernie keeps doing well and Something happens I don't know about. Let's just assume for a moment she is president. The
0: C-SPAN cameras who were filming this then picked up Senator Al Franken grinning widely at the humor because it was a joke. It was a joke that all the senators were in on knowing that there was no real chance that Donald Trump was going to be the next president. Maybe the then barely alive Ted Cruz was going to win, but this was not the feeling at the time. NBC News Wall Street Journal had just released a poll days before showing Clinton up by 13 over Trump. So Graham went on to say, we are therefore going to get a more liberal pick than Merrick Garland and we'll take that chance. Such is the nature of the principle we stand on. And if somehow all of that doesn't happen, Hillary Clinton and her liberal pick, which everyone knew it would, He made the infamous pledge that you are hearing.
2: We're setting a precedent here today, Republicans are, that in the last year, at least of a lame duck eight-year term, I would say it's going to be a four-year term, that you're not going to fill a vacancy of the Supreme Court based on what we're doing here today. That's going to be the new rule. When y'all change the rules about appellate judges and district court judges to get your way... I thought it was a really abuse of power.
0: A precedent. Well, I guess rules are made to be broken, especially when the solemn and serious duty of selecting the grandest interpreter of our most important rules, Supreme Court justices, is at play. But Graham went on to lay out the implications of the politicized judge selection process.
2: And what you have done here is you've made the caucuses, the Republican and Democratic caucuses, are now not going to have to reach across the aisle when it comes to appellate judges and district court judges to get input from us or we get input from you. So what does that mean? That we're going to pick the most hard ass people we can find.
0: He is right. That is what happened. And hearing the fuller explanation, maybe you can understand why it happened. Because he and every Republican on that committee actually believed that there was nothing wrong with holding the nomination open. And it probably wouldn't even matter, they all believed to the makeup of the court, Because of what he said about Hillary Clinton, they just wanted to thwart Democrats in the moment. Because, why? Because they believed that Democrats had thwarted them. Again, it was an honest belief. Graham cited then Senator Barack Obama's attempted filibustering of Justices Alito and Roberts. The Democrats, in his view, backtracked on the Gang of Fourteen compromise about Senate filibustering. Remember that? And of the 14 senators who came to the compromise about not filibustering court selections, only three of them were left by 2016. It was him, Susan Collins, and John McCain. That's it. And as Graham saw it, the Democrats retreated on the compromise when Harry Reid deployed the so-called nuclear option. This move clearly left Graham embittered.
2: I got that crap beat out of me at home, and when I told people I just thought that consequences come with elections.
0: That was the text. That was the context of his 2016 remarks. So two years later, he was at the Atlantic Ideas Festival, which to our great grandfathers would have meant Gloucester whaling captains getting together to talk harpooning techniques. Anyway, Graham, in the 2018 version of the Atlantic Ideas Festival, he was still mad. He was still mad about the courts. He still felt burnt by Democrats. But the locus of his resentment had changed. He was being criticized, at times vocally, right there and then, by members of the Atlantic Ideas audience, old sea captains all, boo, arg. He was being criticized over what he perceived as the maltreatment of Brett Kavanaugh by Democrats. He was in a fighting mood. Here's how he framed his declaration back then. Now I'll tell you
2: this, this may make you feel better, but I really don't care. If a, Opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started. We'll wait to the next election. And I've got a pretty good chance of being the junior. You're on the record. Yeah. All right. Hold
0: the tape. And so we shall. And our holding of the tape will certainly not dissuade Senator Graham, except for maybe one consideration. Yeah, consequences come with elections, as he said, But also, elections can be, occasionally are, an example of a consequence. Graham is up for re-election, and he is ahead. But in the latest morning consult poll, he's at 46%, and his challenger is at 45 It would be a shocking result if a Democrat could win the Senate seat from South Carolina. But stranger things have happened, like a sitting senator being filleted by a promise that he made that he never thought he would be asked to keep. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly, just producer, once said, if the Shamrock Shake debuts outside the traditional St. Patrick's Day window, well then she's buying Shamrock Shakes for everyone. And we're still waiting. Daniel Schrader, just producer, has vowed the same thing, but about pumpkin spice lattes in summer. And guess what? The hordes are assembling outside his basement apartment with a strobe light and a refillable travel mug. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. She maintains the greatest hoax Donald Trump ever pulled was convincing the world that Tiffany Trump ever existed. The gist, noting that it is a particularly Democratic Party thing to contemplate the bold political risk, the score-settling maneuver... Of adding two justices to the Supreme Court, thus giving the Democrats only a six-to-five minority. Count them out. Umpro de pro de Peru, and thanks for listening.